Well, so my name's Rick. I go by Rick. I use he, he him pronouns. I work for the Sierra Club. It's a grassroots environmental nonprofit. And my title is an organizing representative. So I represent the interests of our members. And I also organize people in my community to take powerful stands to fight for climate change and justice. I'm listening to your neighborhood. You are listening. You're listening to Your Neighborhood, a podcast for uncomfortable culture conversation, specifically about race. With Hannah and Jackie. I, I went to seminary. I worked in a lot of churches. I get invited to lecture to the nuns here in Rochester, Minnesota, and a, a couple of colleges and a couple of organizations about organizing, about history of political movements. I don't have any like fancy title, I just have like... <laughs> I've worked with a bunch of people and sometimes they ask me to talk to their groups. <laughs> Boom. That sounds like me. Yeah. Yeah, it really does. <laughs> The old informal network. We were hoping you could start us on the church's involvement and role in racism and oppression in our country. I'd be happy to. So uh, I want—I just want to start with a couple of disclaimers. I've worked with churches and faith communities quite a bit um, as a professional organizer here in Rochester, Minnesota. One of my jobs is to um, find organized people and help them act on their values against corporate interests and against racism in powerful ways. So I have that experience. Um, my professional training was actually to be a pastor. Uh, I went to a seminary where I learned a lot of this history, but I never actually worked professionally as a pastor. I was a Christian ed director and I, I worked with some faith-based nonprofits called Young Evangelicals for Climate Action is another one. So a, a lot of this history that I come to is not from an academic perspective. And it's not necessarily from uh, having a career working exclusively or explicitly on, on racial justice, but it's from being in the climate movement and being in a lot of faith circles and finding ways to connect the, the fight for climate justice with faith communities' historic roles in different social movements. And that brought me to learn a lot about this history of the role that, I guess, mainstream white Christianity has had in the 20th century of resisting a lot of times the, the steps towards racial justice uh, that were going on at, at the national level. Is that enough of a, of a disclaimer and a preamble? Yes. And our <laughs> disclaimer and preamble is similarly that we are, in fact, I had a bit of like a, not crisis, but you know, kind of like a who am I and what am I doing here about the podcast? Because it's like, I'm not a historian. I'm not a judge. I haven't worked in the legal system. How am I going to be talking about these things? And Jackie gave me some advice back, which is that we're here to make it plain for people. We're here to remind them of these things because people don't have time to go read all the books about all the things and then extrapolate the useful information. So part of it is to have a conversation that brings to light the salient points for them. Yeah through your own lived experience and have that appreciation for the many different lenses that watch what's happening on a day-to-day -day basis on all the isms and issues, whether they're political or religious. So we're so grateful to have you, Rick. Yeah. Oh, thank you, Jackie. Um, so so my, my journey um, outside of like the practical work aspects that led me towards this knowledge was actually studying the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., right? So like as all good... Seminarians do, they, they study MLK, who is like the, the, the reverend we all want to be. 
And his letter from the Birmingham City Jail is one of his, his most famous as pieces of writing, but it's not something that's taught at least in like the public education that I went to. So it's uh, after the march to Salma, Alabama, that actually Representative John Lewis was, was leading, and that's where uh, very famously he was uh, struck on the head by a police baton. But when uh, MLK was in jail there, he wrote a letter on, on smuggled toilet paper that he got to his lawyer through the bars of his prison cell. And he wrote that it's the moderate white liberal, the moderate white Christian, who agrees with the ends of justice, but disagrees with the means by which people of color and black people in particular advocate for justice, that is the biggest obstacle to actually achieving justice. It's not the racist, the outright racists hitting us with batons, uh, MLK wrote, but rather it's the moderates who, who agree in principle but disagree in practice. So that gave, was a real head-scratcher to me. Um, uh, you know, I, I wanted to be on the right side of history, and a lot of folks that I grew up with, uh, even those who are on the right side of the political spectrum, which is my church of origin and family of origin, you know, we idolize MLK, right? Uh, everyone wants to claim him. And yet, uh, he was saying that folks like me, folks like the person I was becoming, were the obstacles to that. We're going to interrupt ourselves here because Rick sent in a quick correction that he wanted to add, and here it is. I was incorrect to say that MLK's letter from Birmingham City Jail came at the same time as the march over the famous bridge that leads to Selma, where uh, Representative John Lewis was accosted by the police. The letter from the Birmingham City Jail by Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was written in 1963 when he and the SLCC leaders were planning a series of strikes and demonstrations and sit-ins. And a judge said that all these protests and sit-ins were illegal. Then, after MLK and his fellow organizers announced they were going to proceed regardless, MLK was arrested. And that's when he got material smuggled into his jail cell to write this letter, which has become so instrumental for understanding how to engage in this fight for civil rights and racial justice. Thank you. Thanks for that correction. Because I would just believe whatever you say. <laughs> There was a two-year gap, and I would say even what the march across the bridge looked like was influenced two years later because of the content of this letter that was calling out white clergy people who were calling for moderation and patience and challenging them to get some skin in the game. Mm. I'd say that's relevant today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I, yeah, the, the lessons have not yet been learned. So that led me down this journey of uh, learning how were these white moderates in these churches standing in the way of progress. So that was my kind of academic journey. And then on my work journey, kind of coming from the other side of politics, working with a lot of faith communities, especially around climate change and racial justice here in Minnesota and around the country with YECA, we run up against this phenomenon as the religious right. So the moral majority, the religious right, uh, is really grew powerful um, as Reagan got elected in the lead up to 1980 and through the 80s and 90s. And it made being a white religious person very synonymous with being a, a right wing political person. So as I was investigating on the one hand uh, what, uh, what the hell MLK was talking about and as I was investigating on the other hand what are the origins of, of this religious right in the United States? These two lines of inquiry intersected. Uh, so it intersected a few years after the Brown versus Board of Education court decision. So 
Uh, as a refresher for folks, Brown versus Board of Education was a reversal of a previous court decision, and I said, if schools are separate, they are de facto not equal. Separate but equal does not exist. And one of the ways this was operationalized uh, in the Civil Rights Act uh, and was then operationalized was in the IRS tax code. So I apologize for everyone whose eyes are glazing right now, but there's a huge payoff here, I promise. <laughs> so the IRS tax code said, if you are a segregated institution, then now by de jure, uh, by law, you are no longer a charitable institution. So this is where the rubber hit the road for a lot of these civil rights wins from the historic era. And what were some of the most segregated nonprofits in the United States? Churches. But more particularly than churches, schools. Schools. Schools, private religious schools. Yes, Mm -hmm. I mean hospitals, right? Like so there was a color line dividing everything in America. But what really got under white moderate Christians belts or what got under their belts, what really got under their skin Skin. was their was their educational institutions. Mm -hmm. You know, you you might maybe us adults you can force us to to integrate um, and we'll go along with it, gritting our teeth. Um, but our kids, you're going to tell us how to teach our kids? That went very much against this sort of, uh, we're a city on the hill, we're separate from the rest of society, white Christian um, uh, principle or way of thinking about themselves with regards to uh, the rest of the United States. So, this one school in particular, Bob Jones University, they decided they weren't going to integrate and the IRS sent them a bill for back taxes. You got if you're not going to integrate, you're not a charitable organization, you're not a nonprofit anymore. You can still operate, but you owe us taxes for all these times that you weren't paying the uh, the same amount of taxes. This went on for like 7 years or so. And then there was another court case, Green versus Kennedy. This was in 1970, all right? So this is um, so 16 years after Brown versus Board several years after the IRS started this rule. Green versus Kennedy, it reaffirmed the IRS decision. And then one year later, the district court um, issued its ruling and said that, you know what, all these back taxes, everything that you've been fighting against, you do in fact owe, and you have to pay up now or else, you know, we're coming in, we're shutting you down, you are in violation. We'll take you down the same way we took down Capone because of tax violations and tax fraud. So, this roiled the white evangelical community. And a few years later, after the U.S. House, the U.S. Senate were controlled by Democrats, controlled by some of the more left-wing elements in American political society, right-wing strategists were looking for a way to break the left-wing grasp, or what they consider the left-wing grasp of American society, they saw civil rights were advancing. The New Deal from FDR from World War II times uh, was redistributing wealth. There was very, very high taxation on the richest people, on the richest corporations, and there was a, a burgeoning social welfare state. So they were looking for a way to take all this religious, uh, particularly evangelical anger at the federal government and weaponize it for politics. They felt like they couldn't go directly after the civil rights movement on its head, even though that was the animating anger that they wanted to use. So they, there's this famous phone call with 
uh, with the father of uh, James Dobson, uh, with Jerry Falwell, with the folks who would be the architects of Ronald Reagan's campaign. Uh, and they said, how do we get all these white churchgoers angry enough to start voting in one block? And this is when they came up with the idea of using abortion as a wedge issue. So what's the connection between abortion and, and anger at this court case that was making all these Christian colleges and high schools uh, integrate at the risk of their tax status? There isn't, there isn't a direct one, except for the fact that there's a lot of evidence to say that this is what these political operatives decided to do because all the folks they got to use this language of abortion as an affront to our way of life in the past had been pretty pro-abortion and didn't seem to care about it as, a, as a, a singular issue one way or the other. The other piece of evidence we have is actually testimony from these phone calls that were going on that said we were looking for a way to weaponize the anger of white Christians in the United States over this court case and the way we figured it was to manufacture a crisis of abortion. So, there, if this seems a little far-fetched, I uh, assure you I felt the same way. And there's no real natural connection between these two issues. But they thought they could spark a moral indignation without having to take on the mantle or the label of being racists. They were looking for another issue they could direct everyone's energy towards. That doesn't sound too different from today, Rick. <laughs> Yeah, we, we see this kind of like divide and conquer thing, like make, make up um, a proxy battle on some other right. issue that, that kind of gets identities forged and can get right. people of different identities butting heads and not actually talking about the things we have real disagreements about. Right. Um, so I feel like I, I just went on kind of like a long ground setting for the, the rise of the religious right and how it, it was built in order to oppose desegregation. It was built on white anger of being for, forced to do things, forced to change their culture by black people, by folks who they didn't feel were like part of the same society as them. And the operatives who are seeking to take that anger and use it to get some political wins that really didn't have to do with Christian identity um, at all. It also seems like it's like that whole the using the faith to create really a faction of heathens, right? Like that allows, <laughs> it allows them to look at those that are not like them as truly heathens because of the way they look and the way that it's perceived their value systems are, which may not necessarily be in truth, Rick, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think you, you bring up a really great point, Jackie. There's, there's um, you know, in the study of religion, we, we talk about the sacred, the profane, the taboo, and uh, throughout the history of a white American Christianity in particular, there's, there's been a, a long, long tradition of separating us, meaning uh, good white Christians, out from everyone else, from uh, native people, from black people, from folks who are now considered white, who back in the day weren't considered white, so thinking of Irish and Italian and Pol even <laughs> Polish uh, Catholics. If we can separate out this other group and think of them as less than us, uh, either in terms of humanity or in terms of closeness to God, then it gives us moral permission to kind of step on their necks in order for us to get our own good deal. But it's like that, that word permission, it's like the, the permission 
there seems like a dichotomy there between like between the actual values of the church and then the man's value of what is profitable for land, right? Like marrying those two things. And I, I'd imagine that part of this process, like what you talked about, is finding the ways to legislate their own morality, right? Like, like at some point I was, uh, Hannah put me onto this book. Um, what is it called? The Color of Compromise, Jeremy Tisby. Right. So and and what he was saying was that at the moment that people of faith realize that, wait a minute, if I allow this person to become Christian, then they're my brother. And then should I hold my brother in bondage? So then they said, well, let's figure out in Virginia where we are was the first place to legislate the fact that, no, just because they choose to liberate themselves doesn't mean they get liberation. Right. Like they're still we have to still make it a law that they're property. But then also the church wants us to spread this message. So we have to do that. I think what you're saying is just the was the modern day at that time of way of doing that same thing. Yeah, and um, I, I mean, to put a further point, like we can find documents from like the leaders of the white church going way back when that, that do exactly what you're talking about, Jackie. So the institution where I was educated is called Princeton Theological Seminary. It was founded as separate from Princeton University in 1812. So, you know, 1812, long time before the Civil War and abolition, right? So for those like 50, 60 years, you can find writings from the founders of my institution, of one of the most powerful white church institutions in America, like straight up defending the things that you're saying, like straight up saying like, hey, hey, look, look, there's these couple, uh, we would call them now um, uh, texts of terror or verses of terror in the Bible that say like slaves obey your masters and we can bring these heathen people closer to God if we maintain our mastery over them. Like these, these sorts of yeah. things that just like make my skin boil, I would hope make most of the listeners uh, of this podcast skin boil, but this is what was coming down like this is what was being taught to the pastors who would then go teach all their their congregants yeah he's he was saying it's it's the idea of do we choose liberation or do we choose spiritual obedience and it was really mm -hmm. pushing the spiritual obedience over feeling like you had been <laughs> lord knows we don't want people feeling like they're free <laughs> yeah yeah like your, your freedom will, will be Later. only in the afterlife yeah yeah after Obey you die your master yes <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 really interesting to hear and to like be in this moment right now where we're still trying to like I'm still wrapping my my brain around the spread of faith while trying to keep our eyes closed to inequities. Like it's perfectly OK. It's it. I don't know. It, it feels very hypocritical <laughs> at times. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it, it For, really personally, does. That's Jackie's view. That's Jackie's view that it feels. Well, it's, we're also have the benefit of distance and then this quick recap of history, which from from distance, you can see with greater clarity than when you're sitting in the middle of it. So at right. the end of the podcast, Jackie's line is always make it a great day closer to history because it arms you with such a good explanation about why we are where we are now. But you look backward and you think, I I'm wondering, does the idea of faith inhibit people's tendency to question the norm? Like a lot of the things don't, if you're reading the Bible and it says, love thy neighbor, <laughs> you can clearly see all these structures forming that are not 
coming out of love. There's been so many times where Christianity has been used as a has been weaponized against people. So you have to do some mental gymnastics to get there, I think. So do you think that faith inhibits that deeper probing? Um, yeah, I, I, I think it can. I think of two things as you bring that up, Hannah. One thing I think of is uh, like my own, my own family. So growing up in, in a more, or not a more, in a very uh, right-wing uh, fundamentalist Christian family, there, there was sort of a fear of encountering different lenses of faith, even of Christianity. I, I can remember my parents a couple times saying like, oh, I don't want to read that book because what if it like gives me the wrong idea and leads me down the wrong, the, the wrong path, right? There's a lot of concern of if faith is mainly belief and if my beliefs change or are endangered any way, in any way, then my relationship with God is then threatened. I'm being led astray. And there's, mm. again, a couple of sentences or verses in uh, the New Testament, in the Christian scriptures in particular, that talk about like not paying attention to philosophies that, mm. at least for my community, were really taken to heart. Something else I think about is the history of uh, white American Christianity in the late 19th and early 20th century. There was a very powerful movement called the social gospel movement, which is kind of the antithesis of what I hear you describing right now, Hannah, where they were looking at these verses of liberation. They were actually taking a lot of cues from the black church of using the story of Moses and of liberation as uh, out of Egypt as kind of their guiding principles and seeking to, um, to have the practice of making justice, of establishing right relations in the United States as a core part of their expression of faith. So this is where you had the precursors of modern-day evangelicals uh, participating in the Underground Railroad, working hand-in-hand -hand for uh, women's right to vote. Uh, very anti-war as well. But that social gospel kind of came crashing down, as with a lot of things, in a lot of myths that a white American society told itself about progress, that we can become a city on a hill if only we work hard enough to establish justice. That all came crumbling down right around World War I. So this is in popular texts and philosophies and in the secular world, my people would have called it. Uh, this is called the crisis of modernity. Um, we cannot establish that, that kingdom on earth. We cannot work to, to make this a perfectly just place because uh, we're humans and we, we use all these technological advances to kill each other. The fight against abolition failed because reconstruction failed. With, it, with every step forward, we take another step back. So the social gospel really fell apart and it was replaced in white Christianity with this idea of withdrawing of faith is primarily personal, it's primarily about your home, and it's not primarily about what you do out in the streets or out in public. So there is this like, very intentional pushing away from the social gospel because of the failures, um, and because you know, you'd have congregations and pastors fighting each other. And like we see today, I, I think about the, the white churches and the white politicians I know who are getting involved in the movement for black lives, and the backlash they face from their constituencies or from halves of their congregation who threaten to leave. You know, it's, it's really hard to sustain that. You lose a lot of your privilege that you've accumulated as a white person, as an educated person, uh, as a leader in your community if, if you take on these public fights. Um, so, that, again, that's another long-winded story to talk about the retreat of white Christianity from these historic fights for justice to become a, a faith that was very personal and very uh, much about the home and the family. You can think of uh, James Dobson's uh, very famous 
program, a radio show, nonprofit is called Focus on the Family. Because that's where faith is all about. And that was the way white Christendom really, that, that was the ground that made white Christendom really centered on educating their kids. And that's why the Supreme Court decision saying, hey, you have to apply our secular desegregation values in the way you educate your kids or else we'll tax you. That's why it roiled the blood of, of uh, white moderate Christians so much in the United States and led to this like formation of a moral majority that would then, you know, for the last 40 years now, be uh, directly opposed to basically every important justice movement that's happened. Mm. When you use that word secular, I feel like I'm a little triggered because mm -hmm. any time we did something that was different, we would hear we would hear that that's secular. This is secular. Like the, there was nothing. There was no really meet to why it was just mm. don't listen to Kurt Franklin it's secular music <laughs> you know? oh can you tell me yeah, more about that it, it, like like a hard line between what was faith-based and what was secular yeah it was really a hard line drawn like specifically I'm thinking about how you said it's caused the church to be really on the opposite end of of movement and the one that comes to mind is I remember my pastor talking about Kurt Franklin mm. right Kurt Franklin who is done a, a lot for people taking in spiritual music and his music was considered it was just too radical he was too secular and that we need to just sing our hymns and it needs to be done this specific way and that's it so you know like I feel like I would have got hit over the head with a bible if I had to listen to some Kurt Franklin in front of my gr grandmother whereas now it's played on a normal radio station and mm -hmm. the, his, the message is doing exactly what was asked of of Christians was to spread to spread the good news. So it's it's really I, I just wonder how as we get space away from these things, how folks will have to reconcile. But if I hear you correctly, and if history says its way correctly, is that there will always be a justification or a compass that says this the way I am thinking. Everything can be explained away. So it can be explained away in a way that it doesn't doesn't even matter that we still that you know I can now vote right mm -hmm. <laughs> that I can now vote and that's important and that's a good thing that it can sort of be explained away with the right usage of the right verse and the right sort of uh, swaying of hearts and minds with regards to faith that came to mind just when you hear secular it's just I heard it all the time <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, 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 I'm hearing a, a certain parallel to the upbringing I had in church where like secular was probably like the, one of the most frequently used words around me. Right. And it was it was all about like yeah. kind of creating like a, a border of safety, really. It was like if you don't mm -hmm. if you don't go into the secular, you'll be safe. Your, your faith you'll won't be, be compromised. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. And I see you thinking it seems like this very topic would be very triggering for many. And as a lecturer, what reaction are you getting from people? Oh, um, yeah, so I, I think of like three different spaces that I tend to lecture. One is white evangelical spaces. One is uh, non-evangelical white faith spaces. And then one are academic spaces. Um, so in the academic spaces, it, college kids, graduate students, they tend to uh, receive this information pretty readily, right? Might be some critical questions like, oh, I haven't like heard of political strategy uh, described in this way before. 
but with a couple, like when someone's someone's coming with a, a blank tablet, you can provide some framing, and it's pretty readily accepted, uh, even if it's uh, challenged or, or felt out a little bit. Um, in non-evangelical white faith communities, there's a lot of questioning about abortion in particular, because I feel like even in more liberal churches, or, or where the membership might identify more with Democrats over against Republican ideology, abortion still is kind of like a very tricky issue. Uh, the, the framing has been very effective to say like, ah, killing babies, uh, that's, that's what you're doing, and it's bad, and that trumps every other concern you might have, any other value you might have that might conflict and make this a contested space. Um, uh, with that group, I find going into to the documents, going into the histories, the oral histories we have from people like Paul Weyrich, who was one of the architects of Ronald Reagan's campaign, who described this explicit strategy. If we look at the Southern Baptist Convention, this is you know the, the biggest mainly white right-wing uh, denomination of Christianity in the United States. Uh, in the years leading up to Roe v. Wade, it, they voted six times in a row that access to abortion on the basis of a woman's mental, emotional, or physical health was a, mat was a faith priority. The Southern Baptist Convention was lot official part of their lobby to Congress and their message to their um, uh, constituents, their congregants, was that it is part of our faith to fight for a woman's right to safe abortions. And even after Roe v. Wade, which was 74, 76, they affirmed it again, and it wasn't until 1978, a couple years after this Green vs. Conley case, when the Republicans were trying to steal all these white evangelical voters away from Jimmy Carter to give them to Ronald Reagan instead, that they just manufactured this as a wedge issue. So I find that uh, story is very, very compelling to white non-evangelical faith communities. With evangelical faith communities, I tend not to talk to adults at all. I tend to only talk to folks my age or younger. I'm 31. I talk to a lot of uh, high schoolers, college students uh, of that age bracket, mainly because of the nonprofits I've worked for. And with that group, there is already a lot of distrust of the political impulses and instincts of their parents. But it comes up because of climate change, at least in the last few years. Or I'm, I'm thinking I've been engaged in this sort of work for about seven or eight years now. So they view climate change as the pressing moral, political, existential issue of their times. And they see their parents' generation and, and the pulpits of the churches that, that formed them that they otherwise feel really good about. They see the, like this ongoing message that they think is just stupid and wrong. And it creates a little bit of doubt. And that little bit of doubt is kind of like a spark uh, which is able to be uh, flamed pretty well. So you can say, like, listen, they got this wrong, and it's not because, like, they're malicious, it's because they've been lied to. Here are some other ways they've been lied to and used. And so I think the younger generation of white evangelicals, at least the ones that I've uh, been engaged with, which is a pretty narrow cohort of probably more educated than, than the rest of the, the white evangelical crew, but they're pretty ready to to acknowledge the way their community has been manipulated and used for someone else's gain. And I think it's from that same kind of that myth of a subculture that white evangelicals tell, tell themselves that we're a persecuted minority and that gives us leeway to, to act weirdly. But you know, if you, if you still believe that you're a bit of a persecuted minority, you can see how folks are trying to use you and abuse you. And if you have one good piece of evidence 
this has definitely been done to us around climate change, then it's not too far of a leap to say, oh, this has also been done to us about this issue of abortion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because, listen, um, a while back we did a, this thing called the Human Library with a gentleman where he, he have you heard of these, Rick? Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, yeah, I'm very fascinated by them. Yeah, so Human Library for the listeners, it's where someone comes in and they become a book and they tell us their story. And we did it with a white man in the modern day civil rights movement. And one of the biggest pieces he talked about with regards to his parents was they really frowned upon critical thinking. Mm. It was like the the whole message was like, you don't, you do not read deeply into if this is what I, I said, what I said, and that's it. <laughs> right? And I think if we can learn something very powerful about challenging young minds, um, I, a group that I think we can really learn from. And I think, Hannah, you know who I'm going to talk about, the, the UDC the United Daughters of the Confederacy of really understanding how shaping young people's paradigms to get sort of to, to really nail those college students, even college students, because I think that's where they were extremely successful on, on college campuses of just shaping folks' minds around their own personal beliefs. But this thing called technology has gotten us access, right? Like <laughs> has gotten us access to so many different knowledge, skills and attitudes about things that are going on. Like we can, like you said, with climate change, you can you can say one thing, but I can dig and really and I can feel what's going like I can see these things and I can't be put in a bubble and I'm grateful Rick that you are going into those bubbles before they fully bite into and say well it is what it is this is the way I've grown up because I think that's what may have happened to my mother's generation of just like you know my what my mom said is what needs to happen and now they're in their 60s and 50s like trying to like figure it out like this something's not right here yeah, part it's, of the char- part of the charge for this moment in time feels like comfort with discomfort. So this is a yeah. podcast for uncomfortable conversations specifically around race. And even this past weekend I was with family and we all probably are going to vote in the same way. We still had a lot to unpack and there are still these differences that felt very heated even though if we were to take a political test we would probably fall pretty close, like closer than many families, I I think I hear. And it was still so uncomfortable because particularly being a Southerner, culturally, there's a part of the culture that is to agree with people is to make comfortable conversation. There's a certain way that you can very indirectly disagree, but that disagreement, which comes from critical thought and questioning and trying to make changes is just very uncomfortable and against the grain. And nobody wants to be used. No. I heard Rick as like nobody wants to be used. We don't want puppet masters. Mm -hmm. There's also a domino effect I think that happens when you find out about one instance of being used. Mm -hmm. Once you find one then you're like, well, what is true? And that can feel like a whole unearthing event for your life and the things that you have held up as pillars of truth. Yeah. And, and if I could, could butt in here just a little bit, I'm feeling a connection with what y'all are saying and with my, my work coming from the evangelical community of how patriarchal and authoritarian or and hierarchical, right? So like the idea of authority, 
is so important. But in order to do some of the deconstructing work I do, in order to activate folks to live out their values with regards to climate change or the movement for black lives, it requires questioning authority in a way that runs against the way you were taught your faith, which is very like uh, God to pastor to husband to family, right? Um, so if you start questioning that, you start questioning some very fundamental elements of the way you see the world and the discomfort is not just from talking about race which is very hard for white people to do uh, without feeling very fragile or implicated or guilty but it's also like something i think deeper at least for the community that i'm thinking about that i've experienced um where you're kind of questioning like the the way you've been taught to interact with your family and your church and the way you process information and epistemology or how you know what you know yeah. and uh yeah it can be very disconcerting, and I, I've never seen it happen in a conversation. I've only ever seen it happen over years for people that I know. Yeah. So what do you think your turning point? Because as you were saying that, my mind was saying, like, for me, the turning point with where I had to deviate or started really thinking about um, the way I was brought up religiously or spiritually was when I realized what women were allowed to do and what they, like, it was like, wait a minute, that... That really doesn't make sense, which led to the historical aspects of being black and which led like it just led down this road of just like unpacking. Like, is that really true? Is that really right? Like, Grandma, am I really supposed to allow a man to to do this to me (laughs) because the book says that that's okay? Like, am I not supposed to speak up? because the book says I should shut up. I mean, help me. And no one had answers, so like say access. But what do you think was, Hannah, you two, what do you think your point was where you said like, I need to dig? What was the precipice for you coming into this? Um, I, I have some ideas, at least for me, and I think for a lot of people, it wasn't just one point, but it was this culmination of experiences. But, uh, but growing up, I had a lot of gay friends. And my church, you know, I heard so many sermons about, like, how, you know, there's this culture war, and they're trying to force us to be gay. Um, and there's a gay agenda that's, like, the antithesis of our faith. But I had friends who, like, you know, I, I loved, and were just trying to live their life, you know, uh, and who, at great personal risk, were coming out, uh, you know, even in my fairly liberal northeast little suburb, um, you know, it was still dangerous in a number of ways for these young kids to say like, hey, I'm gay. And it wasn't like for any agenda, it was just for them trying to save their own lives and to be who they were. And then that, that didn't do it for me. I, you know, I was still anti-gay or homophobic, but it was a, a question mark. And then as I went through college, I went to an evangelical Christian college and uh, almost every single year I was there, there was a suicide, either in the student body or someone who was like recently graduated of, uh, I think they were all men, young gay men, uh, who were going to these evangelical schools and just being told day after day that um, they're wrong. And then I brought all of this to me with seminary, to when I got to seminary, and one of my roommates was gay, and he like took the mercy on me to have kind of long conversations where he would like listen to the bullshit that I was spouting questioning like whether you know he should be a pastor you know not in those words but that was like underneath it all uh but kind of who tarried with me so i think that for me that was a long you know three educational institutions lots of friends who who 
you know, took the, the mantle, the labor of, of still hanging out with me and talking with me and sharing their experience in really vulnerable ways, which sort of allowed me over, again, many years to see, hey, this, this stuff I grew up believing, it, it, it ain't right, and it is not, uh, it, if everything I know about the God I think I know tells me that this, this element of our doctrine, this element of our practice is very, very wrong. Yeah, I guess mine similarly happened in college. I mean, my whole family kind of deviated at the same time, so that maybe makes mine less of an independent thought. But I did go to college, and so we had to take New Testament and Old Testament, and we'd be asked questions about hot-button issues, or we'd read something and then try and say, well, what does that mean for this thing that's happening in our world right now? And I was in theater, and all of my theater friends would always argue the anti, you know, the against the religious side. And then I was stuck around people that I did not agree with or hang out with or socialize, but I was fighting this old, old fight that I'd grown up to believe. So that made me start to question it. But that was a moment for me of really shifting sands under my feet of not understanding. But on the other hand, there was so much of what I grew up with that was kind of just the way things were, but never felt right. I wasn't a strong enough independent thinker at that time or didn't catch on to it early enough to in the moment be like, this is weird or this is, you know, when it was happening, I was still just like, okay, this is the culture around this. We have gay people at our church, but they're not openly gay. We go to the white church, which is down the block from the black church when that was not what my school looked like. There were just things that weren't things that weren't right, but also I was young and saw people going along with it. And that is how our country kind of is. Like there's just these big tides of things, which is why movements I think are so important to pull people along and get them to see a different perspective. Sounds like once we got into other people's neighborhood. Yeah. We really. You know what, though? We really found a way. I was just told this morning, I'm really surprised by this. Some, uh, another mother called me to ask about a preschool and the preschools that are options around where I live are in churches. And for the one that she was going to send her kid to, she said, you still have to sign a piece of paper that says a marriage is between a man and a woman. Yeah. Yes. Well, listen, Why? My I'm very shocked. Mm-mm. I'll tell you, my son, I sent him to Christian school all the way up into fourth grade. I pulled him out because I started really seeing. And initially at a, the Christian school I took him to, uh, he was questioned about the status that we had. He has to sign when they get to fifth grade. They have to sign a document saying that they will not listen to secular music. <laughs> they have to make these sort of packs of what they won't do in the world that's like normal teenage stuff. And I was just like, I don't know how to do this. So that, yeah, it's still real. That's still yeah. some people's reality. And it. Rick's work is important because one thing is that we will find what is near dear to us. We will find our system of values and hopefully in doing work in what we feel is truly important to us leads us to a sort of enlightenment. And for Rick, it seems like Ultimately, the climate is the thing that is bringing sort of bringing uh, another generation of folks in to really start, 
you know, critically thinking, not right or wrong, because I think it's beautiful to have a system of beliefs, right? Like having a moral compass, there's nothing wrong with that. Having faith in it, whether it's I just celebrated Ganesha's day, right? (laughs) Like understanding that I, I, you know, like there's so much and so much faith out there to really pull in that sometimes it just takes finding that right thing that makes you sort of open up your mind. You're making me think of two things. One is the way that I met Rick actually was (laughs) at an environmental protest and I kept showing up to the Unitarian Universalist Church, which housed a lot of the events that you were hosting at the time. (laughs) And so I ended up starting to go there and for anyone unfamiliar, one of the tenants is an anti-racist tenant and they just added that in, although I think that has been a part of what they've always done. It's a very progressive environment, but it feels great to have found that, and I found that because of you, ironically, Rick. But then you get so entrenched in a group of people that you find that seem to suit where you are now that you've thought your thoughts and questioned your things, and you may lose touch with the fact that people are sending their kids to school and still signing things. It's just important to have these conversations so that you don't wind up in another bubble and then shocked by something that's happening right in your own neighborhood Mm -hmm. this uh i have i have two thoughts here uh (laughs) both inspired what 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 y'all said um so hannah actually so that march i remember it was uh, in winona minnesota right on the border of the mississippi and it was a march in solidarity with standing rock um, the, the Dakota Sioux tribe, uh, who was against uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline. And I, I think this really kind of proves your point, Jackie, about how things like climate change are a way in for especially a lot of white folks to start thinking about justice more broadly and racial justice in particular, right? Because there's all these white environmentalists who are concerned about climate change who are against this pipeline, but who started this process of realizing how come all these pipelines go across native land? Oh, it's because like native people have been discriminated against and persecuted and killed and they don't have political power to fight them. So they go across their land to make it easier. Right. And it's it's the beginnings of this idea of solidarity that, hey, if if I want to save the planet, if I want my life and the lives of my kids and grandkids to be good, I actually have to care. I have to give a fuck about what happens to people who look differently than me and who I've been segregated from my entire life. And that also makes me just kind of go back to the idea of like segregation and how it like it hasn't just been like this accident of, you know, back in the day, Jim Crow split us up white and black. And that's just kind of the way it's remained. But it's been this like process all the way through the 20th century of uh, saying like, hey, like white people, you get the GI Bill and uh, you can live anywhere you want. And we're going to redline. If you don't know this term, look it up, the listeners. We're going to redline. We're not going to give black people and people of color loans or even show them houses or apartments anywhere but this one part of a city. And we're going to give people the GI Bill, but only white soldiers get GI Bill to buy houses in newly developed suburbs, right? So there's, there's been this ongoing process of, of segregating our physical spaces where we don't have these like, natural ways of rubbing elbows and getting to know people. Uh, at least white people don't have a lot of like, natural ways to, to kind of rub elbows and, and build an affection and a sense of solidarity and caring about what happens to someone who looks differently than us. But then sort of something like the climate change comes in and it's like, oh, actually, like climate change only exists because we consider some areas disposable because of racism, because the people who live on those areas don't matter to us. So if we actually want to fight climate change, we have to fight racism because that's what this whole thing is built on. 
Yes, yes. I know, it's sl- just slow clap. Yeah, slow. <laughs> I was going to say, there, this is a, just such a huge topic. I know that we didn't even scratch the surface of what you have to offer on this. So if you have any resources that listeners could turn to if they're curious about learning more, we want to know it. Two, uh, two of my favorite readings, they're both like five to ten minute readings. One is an article in Politico. It's available for free on internet, and it's called... <laughs> The Real Origins of the Religious Right by Randall Balmer. The Real Origins of the Religious Right by Randall Balmer. He is a professor um, at Dartmouth. He wrote about this time in politics quite a bit. Lays out everything I said, but with like way more detail and facts. The other is from my own organization, uh, the Sierra Club. We have a, a, a magazine that's online and in print. Again, it's a free resource. It's by one of my colleagues. His name is Hop Hopkins. He is a black man who uh, is our director of strategic partnerships. And his article is called Racism is Killing the Planet. Um, and it starts with his experience, you know, talking to his, his kids, his, his black children, about what it means to, to grow up in a society where you have to be afraid of the police. And then talks about why his work with the Sierra Club in fighting climate change is very much integrated and intersects with his work of just trying to create a world where his black children don't have to be as afraid as he was growing up. Um, so uh, that's, again, it's called uh, Why Racism is Killing the Planet by Hop Hopkins. We will put that in the notes for the episode, even though Hop Hopkins is an unforgettable name. Right? <laughs> so what did we miss, though? You have the floor. Oh, wow. Um, I don't come fully formed, I guess, it is part of, part of this. Um, that, you know, I've, I keep learning uh, so much in this work, and I feel like I just have to shout out some of the, the folks who maybe weren't mentioned. So uh, Climate Strike students. Young students all around the world, fired by this uh, young woman, Greta, from Sweden, here in Minnesota. The climate strike movement is led mostly by high school girls who are first and second generation immigrants from Somalia. So they carry with them all these um, identities of immigrants, Muslim, black, who face a lot of uh, a lot of discrimination here in Minnesota. but. The way they've kind of been held at arm's length by these communities that their family immigrated to for the, the hope of a better life, of escaping drought and escaping the ravages of climate change and escalate conflicts and create famines. They've taken a real leadership role to say, hey, we're not going to take um, anything for granted. We have to be invested in our community. And the way we're the gift we have to give back is to be disruptors and is to remind you all that this planet depends on us getting our shit together. And we're going to put our own futures on the line in order to do this. We're going to go up to decision makers and say, hey, listen to me. I'm just a high school kid. Uh, we're going to st- step out of school regardless of what the administration says. And it's really been studying at their feet and trying to find ways to support their movement. But they've really educated me so much on the intersections of racism and climate change and how in order to work on one, we necessarily have to be working on the other. So I guess that's all to say, check out the climate strike students. And there's a few places in the Christian scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, where he talks about being led by little children. And I have to say, like, one of the most important things I've learned as I grow into my adulthood is to continually be a student of the younger generation. And, yeah, let all of these movements for social justice against racism, fighting climate change, for civil rights, have always had students and young people kind of at their core in their heartbeat. 
I mean, I think it's so easy for people like me to kind of ignore them, uh, but to ignore them is to ignore so many gifts and to, to leave so much power untapped uh, that's there that desperately wants to have a hand in changing the world. You both see tremendous value in young people, and I think that makes you guys very smart. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like you even put in there sort of the so what now what, yeah. our so what now what pieces where we take just really chew what we said right and we say okay so we talked about this now what what what's next what's the biting point what do we walk away from um in this conversation and if i heard you correctly right it's like i love that you said we need to become students but i'll give you the floor and for if you have anything you want to add to your so what now what oh wow um so i guess the core of our conversation was about white Christianity and, and civil rights and racial justice. And I guess if there's any listeners who kind of identify with being a part of like a, a white church who want to act on their values, um, I would say finding some bit of activism in your community, whether it's Black Lives Matter rally, whether it's a climate strike rally, and show up, but don't just show up as an individual. Show up representing your faith community, especially if you can get a bunch of folks and wear your t-shirts or, or some way of identifying yourself, you know, strong arm your pastor or, or whatever faith leader to showing up in, in their religious garb. That means so much to the folks who are doing the risky work of organizing these things and, and have spotlights and know that the rest of their community is going to be holding them at a distance and questioning them. To show your solidarity in, in that way and, and to go up and to not only thank the especially young people who are running these things, but offer your resources, offer your time, and ask, what can we do to support you? What do we have to learn? And then do that. I, I think the, if I don't want to speak for the movement, but one thing I've, I think I've observed from the movement, capital T, capital M, is that it's, it's ready, it, it's, it's waiting with arms wide open for collaborators. And you don't have to leave your identity behind, but your participation in the movement is so much stronger if you wear your identities on the sleeve and lean in and say, we're doing this because of our values, because of our identity. That's why we want to be a part of this movement for change. That's why we have to stand here as Christians, as Baptists, as a Jewish community and, and say that black lives matter and say that climate change is a social justice matter and that we're willing to change our lives in order to improve the lives of our neighbors and for our kids. <laughs> you want to go after Rick? No, but I guess I'll, we have to. No, I will. I'll go. I'll go. The so what for me with the conversation is that, you know, so we do recognize that you know, having faith and being domesticated in a specific way, it's not a unique experience. We all are domesticated differently and we grow up. The one thing that we have is we do have the ability to use our noodles to pull us into a better space. And I think the now what to me is I, I really think in all of this, whether you're Christian, you're Buddhist, you're Confucius, you're Catholic, um, as my son likes to study ninjography, whatever that is, you know, whatever it is, is that what we do is is about choice behavior. And while white supremacy was a choice 
right? It doesn't have to continue to be a choice. There's no good racist, right? There's no, um, there's this not, it's not really a thing. Uh, but what we can do is challenge ourselves as our whole self to be in spaces where we can challenge our own thinking, but not lose. You don't have to lose your identity in that thinking, right? I equated to a lot of my white counterparts have said, I've never been the only person in a room. Right. I've never been the only white person in a room. That's something so small of just like positioning yourself to be in a space. And that can be at a rally where you're surrounded by people that don't think, believe or or look like you. But you're opening your mind to those sorts of conversation. I just think that we are in a time where there is opportunity. There's opportunity virtually. There's opportunity in face to face to really just position yourself to see if Maybe uh, love thy neighbor is a real thing. Maybe I can love my neighbor and not be disagreeable. I can disagree with them and not be disagreeable. So I think that that's the now what is, as you would say, Hannah, this is this a small step of coming outside of your own bubble with something very, very small. And I'd encourage people to do it. You can be a Christian with compromise. I think the Lord compromises a lot with us in our little, <laughs> you know, but let's not compromise with the isms, right? Racism, sexism, all those things. Hannah? Yeah, that actually leads into mine quite well, so I'm glad that you went before me because I was thinking when, Rick, you were talking about abortion being this tool to be a backhanded way to divide people. We. We can't out loud say, use, you know, tackle civil rights head on. So we have to go through this back channel. We know we can divide people over this issue. I think that happens to us maybe more than we know in present day. And so that leads me to this thing that I still am working on with my, in myself, which is not to just be with people who think the way that I think, but to continue to try and have conversations, to be in spaces as, as we lead up to an election might be people who politically think differently than you, who religiously think differently than you, and try and not let yourself be divided from other people. I think that there's a way to not compromise on the isms and, and also not be divided, because I think we can be very powerful when we are able to sit in conversation and to um, not be manipulated that way. It makes me think of a Buddhist book, which my kid reads called Seed, The Seed of Compassion. Seed. And that is all the last couple of pages. Highly recommend <laughs> just talking about being compassionate. If somebody says something that you don't agree with, instead of turning away from them, you might ask what made them think that. And both of you guys told me stories during this conversation that I didn't know about you guys as people that have been formative, that have led you to be where you are now. And so I think leaving the space for that, how did you come to this is really important. You know what you made me think of, Hannah? Hmm. It's literally four generations out there trying to work right now. <laughs> like, we're not always going to agree on everything. <laughs> you know? Yeah. There are four generations in this, as Rick said, capital T, capital M, in the movement, mm -hmm. trying to do work to make our country really live up to what it said it was going to be, trying to be a good spiritual steward in whatever it is that your faith is. That's four different generations 
reading, writing, and talking about these things from their own paradigm <laughs> while trying to shift their paradigm. <laughs> it's an exercise, and I think that if we keep doing things like that, empathy muscle will get really strong because I think that stretches across religious and political barriers when, when exercised. Rick, your beautiful mind is only outshined by your ability to grow an amazing mustache. That's the kindest thing boom, you could have said Listeners, to me. <laughs> if you want to see... If you want to see this really, really well done facial hair, you can check this video version of this out on YouTube, right? Is that a true story? That's a true story. Okay. So we want to thank and express gratitude to Rick Morris. Yeah. Da, 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 da. Thank Our you. <laughs> Master organizer. Uh, thank you for inviting me on. Uh, what, <laughs> what fun, what an honor, and what an amazing podcast. Like, to my mind, this is exactly the work that needs to be done, and y'all do it in such an amazing and approachable way. So thank you. Grata too. Until next time. Stay open. Stay curious. Take a baby step to betterment. And make it a great day closer to history. 